It's a big week. It is a big week. Would you call this the third annual or the second annual? Se third annual, second here, something in the water. Yeah, I mean, I would say, yeah, third, third annual. Yeah, it, uh, I would go with that. That works. Have you have you seen any of the pictures? No. Um, have you? I've seen a couple. So, you know, I used to work in news, so I, I was friends with a lot of news people. So, like, scrolling on the book face today for, like, the two minutes a day that I do it, I saw some people posting some pictures of, like, what's mm. been built. Uh, looks like they got a bunch of uh, shiny Christmas uh, silver balls. Uh, a stage, obviously. Um, three three stages this year. Oh, okay. That's cool. Yeah. So they, yeah, two stages that face one another. I can't remember what streets that they're on, but then there's a third stage where they're doing uh, the different block party things. So, uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to something in the water. It'll be a fun weekend. Do they ever announce how many tickets they were selling or has sold or anything like that? I don't know. Um, 35,000 was the number last time, but that was a max. And I wonder if they just said, screw it, we'll allow it as many people. Because what, like 40,000 people do Shamrock. So it's not like that's a uncommon amount of people down there. Yeah. And it sounds like it's just, it's a given that it, it, it seems that Virginia Beach is just, at least the oceanfront area is just kind of shut down for the weekend. Uh, well, I heard, I don't remember where I saw this, but there's a restaurant, I guess, down there that they're not allowed to open their front doors during the weekend they can only open from the patio oh uh, on for, the, for on security the reasons yeah mm. oh that makes sense that makes sense oh i guess because then you could go through right right oh, that's why mm. yeah sense. i'm looking forward to it it's gonna be a lot of fun speaking of innovation and new things that's what we'll bring on today's guest have you, guys, have you guys all met before? I, I've never met you guys. I've, I've known you guys for 14 minutes at this point. Yeah. Uh, I, Tim and I talked one time, at least. That, yep. Same with uh, Braden and I. We've, uh, yeah. But that that's the makes Thursdays my favorite my favorite day of the week. Get to learn more <laughs> things about uh, what's happening in, either in Hampton Roads or Virginia. Now we'll get a little taste of RVA or yeah, a little cool. bit north. A little bit of taste of taste of all of it because uh, we we work across the state so we're excited to be here and thanks for having us on i guess my first question is adam who did the artwork behind you behind me yeah it's very... <laughs> there's me. a little yeah little feng shui on the table as uh yeah yeah yeah, <laughs> so, yeah. <so> confused. <laughs> i do i do all the touch-up got it got it you know, yeah. easy first questions, you know, before we go into the hard <laughs> stuff about, you know, bills and taxes and, and energy. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, it's interesting, though. I mean, like we've all built um, programs centered on uh, entrepreneurship and yeah. uh, so many people I, I, like we all keep things. We're, we're pretty minimalistic in that. And it's like we focus on what needs to be focused on. And I always said, hey, if you make things too nice, we, we don't want the founders to stay forever. You know, they, they need to be around long enough to uh, do what they have to do. Check the boxes, hit uh, some sort of product market fit. And then like you got to kick them out of the nest. So you can't make it too nice. That's yeah, true. But this uh, is a drop in office. So this is really, really like a. Like a, you're just you're just popping in for a couple hours. I think that's important, though. Like I, I and not just the pop in aspect, but like yeah. things that are like there should be some sort of like 
I, I, I hate the word exit strategy, but exit strategy to kick people out at some point. Cause it's like, you gotta do that. And then like, I, I remember when I was doing hatch, it started to seem like there's a lot more accelerators at that point. They were mm -hmm. popping up and people were just like uh, accelerator hopping. Mm -hmm. So they'd go through four to six in a, mm -hmm. a 12 to 18 month period. And it's like, look, nothing against your business, but I mean, how many of these do you really need to go through? Like you're probably getting very similar programming through all of them. Um, I don't know. Do people still do that? Like I, I, yes. I haven't. Okay. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> and typically we, our goal is to be the last stop on, Got that, it. on that. Yeah. But yes, all the time. Yeah, we're, we're different than most kind of accelerators um, in that our actual acceleration program, DEIC Accelerate, focuses on deployments and pilot projects versus very early pre-seed investment. So yeah. we actually operate um, closer through our Accelerate program to a, to a late seed or even a Series A round company, um, right. given the nature of the energy industry and the types of technologies and entrepreneurs that we're trying to support. Um, there's a lot of that early stage programming with the Virginia Accelerator Network and uh, 757 Accelerate and Lighthouse Labs and other organizations across the Commonwealth um, that when the DEIC launched Accelerate, it really focused on using our deep partnership with Dominion Energy as, as a founder and a corporate sponsor um, to be able to push these founders and entrepreneurs to that really big next stage, which is a utility scale pilot project of some sort. Um, and so we have we have a space. Yeah, we have our co-working space, 6,000 square feet. We have some early stage programming in our one-on-one -on -one mentorship, um, but it's through our Accelerate program where we take these companies uh, that are ready for the wild and maybe they've done a, a pilot here and there with other utilities or other research organizations like EPRI um, and, uh, and they're ready to, to, to work with Dominion. Um, and we kind of make that soft launch and those introductions and then have an 18 week program that runs June to October uh, that really builds out that business case and, and helps them explore what it means to, to actually work with a pilot or work with a utility. They're very different beasts to try to wrap your hands around from a startup perspective. And you guys are located in Ashland, Virginia. Yep. Mm -hmm. Is it, do, do people get confused by that? I mean, or, or do they just lump you yes. into Richmond or, uh, yeah. Well, that's a good question. So it's easier for somebody, if somebody's in Arlington or somebody's down where y'all are, it's easier to say like, we're sort of Richmond area, right? Mm -hmm. But if you talk to someone in Richmond, they want to be very clear. This is Ashland and Ashland is a different place. It is a town. It is North of Richmond. It is its own uh, well, it's the center of the universe. It's the center of the universe, exactly. That's the tagline. Uh, but it's its own. It's its own town. Um, and so, is that a problem uh, yeah. though? Like, because I mean, from a geography standpoint, like it seems like we have that same problem here. People want to call it a moniker, a different things. When it's like, it's really right. just the same thing. It's like, guys, like these are internal things. It sounds like you guys have that internal, you know, issue up there from a geographical standpoint. It's like on a map, you have to go in really far into Google Maps right. to figure out where Ashland is. Nothing against Ashland, nothing against Chesapeake, Virginia, but it's right. like it. Yeah. People treat it like the dark side of the moon, like, yeah. like from here. It, it's true. And I think it's one of the things that we learned, you know, that I learned in my, my four years here is, is at first when I first started, it was like, well, we're part of the Richmond ecosystem, right? So we're we're going to be Richmond's climate tech incubator, and people will come from 
South side or from the city and they'll come up here because they have startups. And what we learned is that's not always true. Um, if somebody's close to the city, they'd probably rather go work out a startup Virginia for the most part. Um, and they'll come see us up in Ashland when they need to. And I think that was just a thing we had to learn um, over a year or two was that uh, we're 20 minutes outside of downtown. And so just, just because we built a thing and said it's here and it's open doesn't mean people are going to come 20 minutes to see us. So, so we had to like build really good reasons um, for, for people to come to come see us. And then, and then I guess the, the second part of that, that was the really great thing that came out of COVID for us was learning that like, oh, actually, um, if everyone's going to go virtual, then being in Ashland isn't weird anymore. Like, it doesn't matter that we're in Ashland. We can work with people in Blacksburg. We can work with people in Fairfax. We can work with people in Hampton. No one cares. And, and uh, you know, we're just centrally located in the state. So, yeah. Center, and, center of the universe. Center of the universe. Yeah. <laughs> and programming is, is king I mean, or yeah. queen. Uh, if you have great programming, I mean, founders, entrepreneurs, they're going to go wherever they can to get the, the right the programming that they're looking yeah. for. So, uh, yeah, there's there's a lot to that as well. But how many cohorts do, do you have one co one cohort a year? Do you have, how, how does that work? We do one a year because like Braden said, it's, it's pretty long, right? It's, it's 18 weeks because it's less, it's less um, curriculum driven and more, it's just a business development driven, right? So, so it's light on curriculum, like really light on curriculum, much heavier, just on sort of like having meetings, doing the business development process. And, and to go back to what you said about like hip hop accelerator hopping, um, that's we're fine for accelerator hopping because we want someone to go through ICAP first. Like some of our best, our best outcomes have been when somebody did ICAP and then did, you know, 757 or Lighthouse or Ramp um, and then got pointed our direction because the, the way our program has sort of developed over time has been um, less and less curriculum focused and more and more just helping them get over that commercialization endpoint. Um, you know, to, to like getting ready to scale. Um, and so that's, that's where we say it's like most of the companies that we talk to, cause we, we do, we recruit as much as we're just sort of an open application. Often I'm just trying to convince somebody like, this isn't the sort of accelerator you've been through before. It's okay. It's okay that you've done three other energy related accelerators. It's okay that you did ICAP. Like we're the, we're the end point for your accelerator journey. Well, in some of those cases, figuring out if someone is a legit business owner or not is what some of these things weed out, you know, where people, yeah, absolutely. I, I don't really want to ask these questions. I don't really want to do this work. I don't really right. want to do anything. I just want to put on LinkedIn that I'm a founder of a business. Yeah. So I'll let Paul Noldy do that now for us. Um, and, uh, or art and the lighthouse crew, and then we'll pick them up after they've sort of figured out a little bit about how they want to be a business because in, in energy, especially, it, uh, or, or sustainability related businesses, especially, we're, we're dealing a lot more with um, more often with hard tech. And, and if you're even if you're software and you're trying to sell to a utility, it's a super long lead time. So, so this isn't like somebody can't just decide they're going to stand up, you know, an energy business overnight. And six months later, they have an MVP and they're off and running and they've gone through their first, you know, they've convinced somebody to go through the first accelerator and they just go, I mean, this is typically, um, you know, 
these are companies that it might be three years, five years um, for them to get to, to revenue. And that's just the nature of the beast. Or, I mean, Braden was talking to um, Near Star Fusion up in Chantilly the other day. And who knows how long their process is going to be. I mean, it's, it's nuclear fusion. Yeah. I mean, and that's, it's, it's fascinating just in the sense of uh, the, the, the messaging and the educational aspect of, of running a place like DEIC, because I mean, it's just, it, it you're not going to have a three-year overnight success story. I mean, right. it, it's going to be, it, it takes a lot of time and, Patience and time is just not a uh, something that a lot of people have. Um, well, and that's why we uh, we launched our Spark Virginia program recently yeah. was to actually kind of work back down the pipeline to the very early stage and explore the technologies and the entrepreneurs and the engineers and innovators that aren't necessarily calling themselves entrepreneurs right now or business owners that exist in the national labs like Jefferson National Lab or exist in our universities like Virginia Tech and VCU and ODU or exist in other corporate research labs um, or even federal labs like NASA and an ability to find those energy technologies that will really be able to um, make the energy transition affordable and efficient over the next couple of decades. Um, and specifically, we're looking at some of those really hard tech areas based on calls that the federal DOE has put out and based on components contained within the 2022 Virginia Energy Plan, there needs to be a lot of support and a lot of effort um, and a lot of workforce development put into our advanced energy economies, nuclear, hydrogen, thermal solar, carbon capture, sequestration and utilization. And it's, you know, kind of those technologies and, and those innovations that are on the leading edge that will take five, seven, 10 years to get off of the ground and need partners throughout that, need de-risking at all of the different levels. And, and so we designed this program to try to build the community around that, bring the academics, bring the industry, bring the investors, bring the entrepreneurs and the innovators and the engineers together to build that community, have those conversations, have those creative collisions that maybe companies will be formed, maybe light technology will be licensed out of the tech transfer offices and, and maybe we'll have more startups. I mean, we can see what um, Virginia Tech, the tech center uh, is trying to do right there in Hampton Roads along with JLab and others um, with the hydrogen hub and which Dominion's involved in and which a lot of organizations are involved in and really is a, uh, uh, kind of the future of energy within Hampton Roads, but also across the state. And, and so figuring out how that transition happens over the next decade or two is going to take a lot of creative creativity and a lot of smart people. So speaking of Spark 757, let's just, let's just dive right into that. What uh, yeah. described us, what that is. And uh, yeah, absolutely. So Spark 757 is our Hampton Roads version, our, our Region 5 version of a Spark Virginia Innovation Challenge micro conference and pitch competition uh, is, is how we really label it. So uh, we were uh, fortunate enough to secure a small Department of Energy grant to develop the Spark Virginia program. And we've sought other funding sources as well to bring a series of innovation challenges anchored by a pitch competition and anchored by an advanced energy micro conference to the nine different Go Virginia regions across the state. 
We kicked it off in February with Spark RVA at VCU, found some really cool um, magnetocaloric refrigeration technology that will make uh, hydrogen liquefaction more affordable and efficient, um, new electrolyzer designs, and, and then just brought the community together, state, de you know, uh, Department of Commerce individuals with Dominion and, and other utility individuals with academics, with entrepreneurs, students, adults, everything. And so we're taking this kind of roadshow across the state um, to host these in the nine Go Virginia regions. Spark 757 is May 16th. Come on out. We're going to have an incredible day. We're going to not only have a bunch of sessions and workshops, we're going to get to go behind the scenes of Jefferson National Lab's particle accelerator. So you're going to get to see where like the most fundamental of nuclear physics research, like beyond the atom, right, um, getting down into the microcosm of, of matter and, and what we know uh, of matter and, and of the existence of, of our universe is done at Jefferson Lab right there. And uh, so we'll get to go behind the scenes, tour the accelerator, tour their labs, um, and then workshop some of their IP, workshop some IP that Jefferson Labs has identified as possibly having a commercial, like, uh, like a commercial pathway. Uh, workshop some uh, IP that NASA intellectual property that NASA has identified as possibly having some commercial pathways. Uh, and then we get to have a bunch of sessions and panelists uh, talk about kind of their involvement and how this ecosystem develops. It's a new ecosystem, right? I mean, it's it's a, a very niche topic, but it's going to be bring together all those people that, again, have those conversations, have those meetings, uh, and get to support each other as, as we try to decarbonize the hardest to abate sectors in the Commonwealth and beyond. You said IP. Uh, I had this note written down, so I'll ask a little bit more about it. So I think I spoke at a, I think it was Jefferson Lab. I spoke at some patent party once where like 30 patents were given out and uh, pretty crazy technology. But a lot of these things literally just then go sit on a shelf. You know, yeah. the patents just sit on a shelf. It sounds like this is actually an opportunity for maybe some of those patents that are getting some dust to actually maybe get out and do something. Yeah. It, is that what I'm hearing? Am I hearing that right? Absolutely. That, that's our hope, right? Like a lot of the tech transfer, there was a, a report released a few years ago that every kind of entrepreneur support organization points to in the state called the Techonomy Report. But technology and IP commercialization has been one of those um, processes that the that Virginia hasn't done a great job at, right? There is a lot of really cutting edge technology that's patent protected or trade secret protected um, or copyright protected that has been developed at our labs, our, our, our publicly funded labs. And to drive our markets forward, there needs to be a way to shine a spotlight on that technology, energize some entrepreneurs and some community builders around that technology, and then give them some pathways to actually de-risk it and, and take it to market with partners along the way to help them. And so that's what we're trying to do with Spark Virginia is kind of go back, look into the labs, go at, we've asked, Jefferson National Lab. We've asked NASA, hey, what, what technologies do you guys have? What researchers do you have that are excited about it? Might be thinking about wanting to commercialize this, but don't necessarily have the, the time or the ability to commercialize it themselves, but are willing to help some entrepreneurs bring those to light, get the community working around them, um, and then hopefully something comes out of this. And, and so we're, we, we did a bunch of lab tours at VCU around the same kind of topic, and we're going to be doing these all over the state to, again, shine the spotlight on the technology. It's been invented, right? We don't have to 
we don't have to reinvent the wheel here or or invent right. any new technology. They're there. The researchers have done. It's finding where they fit into the marketplace, where they fit into that value chain. And then how do you bring them to market? How do you build a company around them? And maybe it's not just one patent, but you might have to build this kind of patent cloud. You might have to build this patent portfolio for your for your company to really have a defensible position, but we can start with a pinprick here, a pinprick there, and eventually we'll kind of fill in the puzzle. Yeah, it's 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 interesting. Um, couple couple points. First point being like a founder may have like this this crazy idea, but they would never in a million years have the R and D budget to come up with this technology. Right. Mm -hmm. And there's all this technology that's sitting on the shelf, just waiting to be licensed and leveraged. Nope very very inex super cheap uh in, in comparison to what the r d cost would be mm -hmm. um i mean what do you think they, one of those projects costs at, at jefferson labs i mean i would think well, hundreds of thousands to millions of dollars just from that if not more yeah I, and because and the thing about it is, is that, like these researchers like that their job is to, to research you know they need to prove that <laughs> point and then once they prove that point they just move on to whatever their next research project is right and like that's like that's a sticky wicket in the sense of like it's really really difficult for a founder to read through like the patent and, and identify what the what the use cases could be. So uh, like the example that I'll use is uh, coincidentally enough, I mean Dominion has a huge offshore wind farm that's being installed uh, in Virginia Beach, uh, twenty something miles uh, off the coast. Um, so these wind turbines, you know, they they spin, they generate the electricity, which is all fine and well. Um, but then there's bugs and there's bird poop, and all the, as all this stuff accumulates on these turbines, it creates it creates drag. So mm -hmm. NASA had a technology that they have a coating that they use to make their uh, their rockets super aerodynamic and slick, so that it will just cut through the air. Well. <laughs> You can take the tech they're they're taking the technology from NASA to reduce drag and in, uh, improve aerodynamics to put it on the blades of the wind turbine so that the bugs and the bird poop doesn't stick on the turbine and so that it increases the amount of electricity yeah. that can be generated. So it's just like but it's a really, really long it, it's it's to, to be able to process both of those things on each end and meet it in the middle and be like, that's the use case that we're going to use this for. That's really, really difficult. Yeah. Yeah. It, it takes, it takes a, a village really. Right. Um, Cause it takes partners at all stages. It takes the OEM, a Siemens, a GE, whoever's producing the blades. It takes a, a utility who's installing these blades. It takes the transport. It takes the painter, you know, the, the, the applicators. Uh, it takes the financing, right. A lot of the trouble, um, in the energy space is how long some of these development cycles are, your financing gets a little bit backed up. And, and as a founder, if, if you don't maintain strict control over your term sheet and your cap tables, then um, you can get into you can get into some 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 sticky problems later on as, as you get crammed down just because of how long some of these things take. Um, and, and there's so many examples like that Windblade one is, is, is such a relevant one because it's Virginia, right? Dominion's biggest project ever is going to be this offshore um, wind project. And there's opportunities throughout the, throughout the value stack there. We had a company in our DEIC Accelerate cohort last year called Grow Oyster Reefs, a female entrepreneur, professor at UVA, Evelyn uh, 
Tickle, um, also professor at, 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 over in LA, and she's developed new, uh, a new concrete that mixture formula um, that mimics the biosignals from oyster shells. So it actually mimics oyster shells to build oyster reefs more efficiently, more effectively, and, and more permanently at the base of offshore wind turbines on the cables. She actually has these mats that go over the cables because again, you have to get the power from the turbine back to shore. So you have these big cables laying on the laying on the seafloor. Um, or it could just be for uh, waterway restoration along the James River or anywhere else where you want to grow either freshwater or saltwater, hot water or cold water oysters and, and reefs. Um, but it's like a new like it, it's all of these types of new opportunities and, and new business opportunities, which means new new entrepreneurs and new businesses, which is kind of the driver of any economic development um, paradigm and, and program. Yeah. And when you mix that with like what we've been talking about, all the technology with Jefferson Lab, NASA, mm -hmm. all the military, all the colleges and universities. I mean, like Virginia and Hampton Roads, I, I, we, it's just, there is so much technology that is available. And if you think about it from any other city or locality across the United States, what, what they would do to have that type of technology at their fingertips, mm -hmm. if we're not able to maximize it in the way that we should. So it's great that we have different people that are doing something like you guys and having Sparks up five seven and the different Sparks across Virginia to, to get people talking because it is just a massive opportunity. Yeah, I, I was just going to say, I mean, you know, you, you think we're working backwards, right? So we know there's a state target to be, you know, to decarbonize our energy grid by 2050, right? Um, and, and Dominion has a similar target. We have sort of roughly a, a federal target. And, and so we, we know that to get there, we're going to have to do things differently, right? To keep our grid, to keep growing, to electrify, to go to electrify transportation, to electrify, I don't know, port, um, shipping, things like that. We're going to have to do more power generation. We're going to have to keep the grid reliable. We're going to have to be you know, cost efficient. Um, we're going to have to do a lot of different things in order to decarbonize um, while remaining, you know, safe and cost effective. We're going to have to reimagine like whole portions of how our electric grid works. And so that's just going to require basically like there's no end to you. We have to reimagine and rework pretty much every single component of it. So so that's that's why we're going to need things like new oyster beds. We're going to need things like whatever can be developed out of. Jefferson Labs and, and new ways of cooling, new new ways of, of just putting up power lines, um, new ways of power generation. It's it's, it's fun um, because um, we don't we don't have the ability to let let ideas just sit on the shelf anymore. We have to actually figure out how to commercialize basically every possible good idea because there's just so much that has to get done. Like on a on a on a timeline, we have a timeline for this. Yeah. Access, um, the, the word access is something that down here in the 757, people have said that, you know, big companies, you know, talk a big talk, but don't necessarily walk a walk. They just kind of just say, yeah, we support small businesses. We want startups, whatever, yada, yada, yada. But when it push comes to shove and they actually need to open the doors, get access or yeah. help or anything like that, it's on a, it's, it's not available. Uh, it, it appears that uh, DE with you guys is something that has has opened those doors and has made it easier for these individuals. 
Is that something that you guys were able to spin out yourselves? Was it them that just said, screw it, we are going to do this? Like, how, how does that work? Because it seems like so many companies, so many organizations, not just here, but all across the, the yeah. country, say one thing, but they don't actually do it. So how, how is that relationship kind of working? How did it start? Stuff like that. Well, so you should caveat this with, Ooh. like, there's big companies. There, there's a lot of Fortune 500 companies, right? Uh utility and infrastructure companies have very like specific um, hurdle, which is if I'm CarMax and I have something funky with a car lot, like you just fix it, right? You have a problem, you might have a customer service problem and you fix the customer service problem. Um, for a utility, if they have a problem, if they try a new thing and the new thing goes wrong, what happens? Like people lose power, buildings lose power, industrial processes lose power, like uh, bad, then very bad stuff happens from there, right? So um, so utilities have uh, like a specific um, I issue with trying new things, which is, which is the downside for them is really, really, really. So you should, you gotta, you have to understand from the start that like an infrastructure company has has the the most disincentive to try new things um, unless they have like tested it and tested it and tested it and tested it. Um, so you, so you, you just have to start from understanding that the, the hurdle rate for a new thing for a utility is is higher than it is in a lot of other industries. And, and if you understand that, then then I think it's it's interesting to look at and and realize like just the, the sheer amount of new stuff that is still being being tested. And, and investigated and piloted um, by Dominion and and sort of other regional utilities at the same time. But but like you just you have to you have to have this sort of understanding first of like what if I if I try a new type of power line near your house and the new type of power line doesn't work, how mad are you going to be? Oh, you know when the power goes out, people <laughs> get livid. People I get mean, livid. It, it goes out. I mean, what? Less than zero repeating percent. You know, zero. Yeah, I'm sure up, up time so, is. So, yeah, it's so yeah. little. But when it goes out, nine point nine, man. Uh, that one day, that one day for two hours, man. That's all you remember. And then, and then for three years, you're like, I'm so mad at my utility company because my power went down for three hours one time. Yep. So, so that's that's the caveat. But we'll say this. Like I said, um, the you know we have huge goals for the power grid. And so to get there, I think everybody understands that it's going to take a ton of innovation. And some of that innovation can happen internally. Some of that innovation is happening at other big companies like a Siemens or an Orsted or a Schneider. And but a lot of that innovation is happening at the labs, is happening in small companies, is happening at universities. And so um, Dominion pours a, t a ton of, uh, no pun intended, energy of corporate energy into sort of understanding what's going on in, in those places. And, and our relationship with them is just one small piece of that, right. Where our sort of our, um, our sponsorship, you know, is our partnership with them is around like helping investigate what's going on in Virginia and beyond and really understanding like, where are those new technologies? Where are those startup companies that can be relevant to the energy transition and helping make those introductions and helping kind of push it along, right? Because we stand outside the company, we're able to, to do things like help help vet, help mentor, help make connections, help make funding connections, right? Like if there's a, a startup in Virginia that is trying to raise a series A, 
there's nobody at Dominion whose job is to help that company raise a Series A, right? But that's something we can help with. And so that's how like we kind of help bridge, um, you know, build that bridge between a startup in Virginia that's trying to develop a new energy related technology and help them get all the way to where they're ready to be working with Dominion. And that's what Dominion is like, yes, please help these guys along, pick them up, get them to us so we can really try and implement some of these new things. Yeah, it's interesting times. I mean, timing, we've talked about timing on this show many, many times. And like timing is so, it, it is in your favor right now in the sense of one, uh, the need to electrify uh, and come up with clean energy solutions. But two, in the sense of like, as you just pointed out, Adam, like we don't want to welcome failure, but at the same time, we, we need, everything's on the table right. at this point. Everything's, so it's just like, if you can think of it, yeah, that's, that's, let's try it. Let's figure it out. So it's like, from an entrepreneurial standpoint, it's like, Hey, if you got some crazy idea, let's talk and, and, and see if it's viable. Well, you know, I mean, right. It's, it's interesting because, because of this sort of like inherent, like entrepreneurship, right. We all say like move fast and break things. And it's like, well, you get, but you get to energy world. You absolutely cannot move fast and break things. Like that's <laughs> just, that this is not what can happen. Yeah. And there's a reason that, um, like the typical procurement time for a large utility from first meeting to buying something is like on a range to two and a half to three and a half years. Like that's, that is what it takes to procure something. Yeah. Um, you know, and you think about their large projects, like, I don't know, Brayton, how long did Vogel take to come online? A couple of decades, decade couple of decades. So like the one new, you know, nuclear plant that's just now coming online only took a few decades, right? The, the wind project. Just a few decades. The wind, off, our offshore wind in Virginia is going to take, you know, 15 years from from sort of like original original being approved to being finished. So, yeah, you know, things take things take longer. And so it's it's resolving that sort of like entrepreneurial mindset with the, the reality of energy infrastructure and how do we kind of create a safe space for those two things to come together and interact um and and make headway but make headway in a in a i don't know a safe way that's going to get us where we need to go i just but, I, but, I have so so many things going through my head right now that I, I just don't have enough time to implement them but uh gosh you would think that uh starting with like battery backup and and if you had a community that would had ba had the battery backup that would be like an innovation community where you can try new things so that if there there is that automatic failover with a new power line or something right. like that that you just divert over to battery backup until you can get everything back online well, I mean, we, that see would that. Be a... we see that coming a lot right that, yeah. that across the energy world right and, and it's not just electric but it can be gas and it, and it can be nuclear and it can kind of be hydrogen and, and anything in between is this idea of modularity Right. Mm -hmm. And the fact that we need to kind of pull things out, put things in and our societal systems need to be dynamic and and adaptable. And I think we've learned adaptability has become such a key word throughout the pandemic and then post pandemic. And even looking at our grid. Right. We have we have to be nimble and adaptable in the way that we move electrons around in the way that we move energy and, and energy can be a fuel source. It can be a gas, you know, think about all the different ways that we consume energy, right? We burn things, we consume them, but it's like the ability to move that around to 
smooth out supply and demand is a really important component, particularly as we look at more renewables on the grid and the intermittency of those renewables gives us really big spikes and really big troughs in that supply demand equation, which aren't necessarily beneficial to the smooth operation of a grid, right? We always have to balance uh, a power consumer with the generator and the power provider, right? To make sure that we're not blowing fuses and circuits, right? Tripping all the breakers. Um, and so we have really kind of been able to dive into this idea of, of energy storage as a means of smoothing those peaks and troughs, whether that's dumping excess load from say an offshore wind farm or a Midwest wind farm or a Texas solar farm or wherever um, into hydrogen production, right? Now we don't only have the energy stored, but we've also made it mobile, right? We've taken what was a very finite way of moving electrons through a transmission line, down a distribution line and into your home or into your business. And now we can put it into a compressed gas tube trailer truck. We could put, we could liquefy it and move it across the country. And from there, we can now also move renewable energy outside of the grid around the country and around the world as we look at different kind of mod modes of, of moving clean hydrogen or ammonia or anything else. And, and the same is to be said about the nuclear industry and going from these big gargantuan projects that are billions and billions of dollars to smaller, more nimble modular projects through small modular reactors, or some companies are doing micro reactors. So this idea of micro grids with a micro reactor, whether that's at the plant level um, or whether that's at the community level or a neighborhood level, um, you know, you, you even have fusion companies, right? Because they're, they're technically radioactive, but they're much less radioactive, right? To be able to, to do microgrids with fusion power plants, uh, you know, a couple decades in the future. Though the joke in fusion is always, it's always a couple decades away, right? But it's this idea of we need to be able to adapt to all the different, it's, it's never going to be a one and done type of scenario in the, the grid of the future. It's going to be in all of the above, but how we actually manage all of the above takes a lot of really sophisticated software, a lot of really sophisticated modes of transportation, uh, and a lot of coordination against entities that aren't necessarily incentivized right now to collaborate, or in some cases for national security purposes, can't collaborate um, or share information. And, and so there has to be almost a reworking of our entire societal structure to really make that energy transition stick and effective. And, and that's the really exciting kind of front of, of where this is all going. Yeah, especially for on our, our where we are, for like people that are afraid of like, oh man, we, we can't have anything like that because mm -hmm. the, the, the risk is too. It's like every time you pass the Hampton Roads Bridge Tunnel, you go by the, the whole Navy fleet that is nuclear powered, that, yeah. that is self-sufficient for 20 years, you know? So it's like, we figured this technology out. Yeah, we, <laughs> of anybody, y'all down there should be most comfortable with it, right? Right, right. Yeah, there are more micro reactors parked, docked off of the, the shore of Norfolk and Virginia <laughs> anywhere else in the world, right? That's right. But that also gives Virginia a 
such a cornerstone leadership position yeah. within this within this energy transition. And, and our partners, the Virginia Nuclear Energy Consortium and the universities, um, Virginia Tech and VCU have some of the top rated nuclear engineering programs in the country. Um, and uh, because we have the headquarters of Framatome and BWXT and Huntington Ingalls, right? And, and um, so, you know, we have the industry, we have the workforce, but we need more of it, right? Because Virginia doesn't only want to site new nuclear reactors. It wants to be the exporter of this technology, the mm -hmm. exporter of these reactors, so that when West Virginia installs a reactor or when Ohio or Arizona install a reactor, that it's built in Virginia or even internationally because of our port and the ability of these modular components to now be manufactured in the, the safe and quality-assured confines of a factory instead of on-site. That's been one of the hardest things and what costs so much with a, a traditional nuclear build is the on site fabrication and how detailed your welding has to be um, and all the other kind of components of building on site versus kind of shipping in and being able to drop, you know, plug and play um, that Virginia has the, the leadership ability um, and is being recognized as that leader with the interest of parties kind of coming into the state and really uh, looking hard at not only energy development plays but manufacturing facilities, jobs, community development is such an important component. I feel like for the last 10 years, I've been preaching what I'm probably going to switch and maybe not preach anymore. So you, you, you guys have even started this conversation 10 minutes ago. It's like, you know, fail fast, move fast. Yeah. I think you said move fast, break stuff, fail fast. But really, if you think about it, like you have to find a very specific consumer or business that's really willing to have that thing break. That's really yeah. willing for that thing to to not work the way that they want, because in almost every situation we, we, we talked about energy when the power goes out. If, if something happens with an airplane, if your meal is bad, if, if, right. if a light goes out, people aren't happy. Right. So, like, it's very interesting that from a startup you know, world, we've said, oh, fail fast, do these things. Mm -hmm. But really, it's like, hold on a second. If you can't find that right customer that's willing to have that thing that is maybe so-so, it's it's an interesting, it's an it's an interesting um predicament that you put yourself yeah. in because well, I think that consumers from a society standpoint, I think that we're getting to the point where we we're taking on too much risk by not modernizing the things that we're right. doing. Right. Yeah, and, and, and sure, but but as a societal, like if you look, I would think that ninety nine percent of those people don't want to work through that risk while it's happening, right? And so it's like that, like the offshore wind thing that you're talking about. That's fifteen years until it comes out. It, that's not really affecting anyone. But if that was in their legit backyard, you know, I think that maybe yeah, we get mad when we see construction. You know, there's something right in front of my house. Like it's right. that that's that's they're de risking something. You know, it's. It's wild. That's just well, an interesting that's... tangent that I thought about as you guys were talking about how polished these things have to be. It's like, well, you know what? Maybe the best businesses really are the ones that are polished and the whole like entrepreneurial, like, oh, fail fast thing is, is really the wrong one. Well, it just depends. And, and again, all right. So if we go back to offshore wind as an example, right? There's, there's so many components to it and we want to make sure it is. I mean, guys, it's, it's more or less in your backyard. So um, yes, but I can't see it every day. Well, right. So it's far enough out that you can't see it. Right. But but when we're talking about de-risking that, it's looking at okay. And so we know we know this because the team is over there now, right? 
It's go to Europe where they've been doing this for a decade already. All right, what are their best practices? What did they learn? What can we take back to Virginia? What's different about Virginia, right? And so we're starting from this point and they're, they're going piece by piece. And each of these pieces are like whole businesses, right? So the turbine itself is a whole business. The coating on the turbine is a whole business. The underwater construction is a whole business. Um, I never saw an article, but like they're doing work now trying to understand um, right whales come through where that construction zone is going to be at certain times of the year. So how do you think about your construction in a way that you're not going to mess with the right whales? Are there ways that we can dampen underwater construction noise? Who has a product that helps us dampen underwater construction noise? Who has a product that helps us understand our right whales coming in, in this direction while we're trying to do underwater construction? How do we, how do we alert the construction team, right? How do we make it, um, you know, the boats, they're having to like custom build the boats that are gonna take the stuff offshore. So, so just every single piece of this, there's no way to move fast and break stuff. Yeah. Cause if you're gonna do it correctly, you have to like invent and re-engineer whole new processes, even when you're taking some existing processes from, from where they've been doing this before. We're still gonna have to invent and engineer stuff here. And so it's, um, there is no way to do it fast because you do it totally worthlessly if you did it fast. You have to like do all of these steps and think them out and invent new stuff and do it correctly and, and move it ahead. And, and then you have to have things like, um, you know, what are gonna be the underwater uh, it's not, is it a UAV if it's underwater? Can it be a UAV if it's underwater? Is it a UAS then, or is it something else? Yeah, yeah. We're, right, we're going to need submersibles. We're going to need um, drone submersibles that keep track of how things are going. And we're going to, someone's going to have to invent the software to run those things. I was talking with some guys who are developing software out of Tufts um, up in the Northeast that is like the AI vision. And they don't want to build a submarine. They just want to have the the, software that powers the camera on the submarine. Well, right? and it's interesting. Uh, I mean, like this book, everybody loves uh, SaaS companies because software is easy. Yeah. But yeah. You know, what we're describing here is just a macro hardware yeah. thing. And hardware is really, really difficult. And yep. uh, boy, there's a lot that goes into it. Yeah, you need construction tech. You're going to need operations and maintenance tech. You're, I mean, the, the just the sheer amount of technology it's going to require, you know, in the Virginia field is just going to be one of many, many offshore wind fields. So this and to is, get a company and to get a company to adopt that. I mean, all the hardware companies that I've ever worked with, I mean, it's yeah. like, it, it's very difficult because they, somewhere in there, you have to become a, a, a member of their checklist, if you will. Right. So it's right. a 20, it's a 20 point checklist, right? Mm -hmm. Well, if you can't make that into a 21 uh, point checklist, you're SOL basically, you know, yeah. and mm -hmm. it's, it's crazy. I do. Well, I was just going to say, I think back to your point of kind of fail fast and, and break things, but not in, is is finding that partner that is willing to help you polish it, yeah. right? That is willing to take some of those incremental risks with you along the way, knowing that, yes, it, it's going to break, right? And I think we see this really well with our, our anchor tenant here, Linebird, right? Who's developed a aerial payload system for utility drone operators to use a drone for what they used to have to hang a person out of a helicopter for, mm -hmm. right? And it was the, it's taken them four years to get to market, but there have been test flights, there have been live line flights, there have been these kind of pathways along it um, 
to de-risk it and to understand we can redesign it, but we're going to do it on our test range, which is a like a fake grid um, before we actually put it on the real grid. But then we do know that we need to put it on the real grid. So when either that grid's debt, when that component is down, we're going to test it or when we know that there's not a huge load. So it just takes a lot of coordination. And it's yeah. that type of uh, transparency and just kind of acceptance that startups are pushing the boundary. And you know you need to push the boundary, but we need to do it in a way, startups need to approach large corporations in a way that is, help me design and build this understanding. I, I, don't, I can't sell you on day one, but you're gonna help me get to a product that solves all your problems. So that upfront customer discovery, that problem identification is such a key component of these big energy hardware projects. So with that being said, I agree. But how do you like if I'm a, if I'm a business owner and I'm yeah. in that case, like what's the pitch? Because I, f I feel like a lot of people have tried doing that and they go to a business, they get the meeting and it just doesn't work, you know. And so maybe it's not that, you know, maybe it's not Dominion, but like someone else, like what is the pitch that gets them in there? Because I feel like that big company has to be receptive to, to this style of thing. And, and the challenges big organizations typically aren't. So I if you were, if you were in their case, what would your pitch be? Yeah, I mean, I think it's also going through the the pathways that exist out there. So there are through our national labs, through the Department of Energy's American Made Challenges, through um, programs that the national labs run with industry, like Chevron Studios that Inrail runs, or uh, organizations like EPRI, uh, the Electric Power Research Institute. Right, there are ways of you piloting with multiple of these companies, getting the stakeholders, right? And so, or our SBIR, right? Small Business Innovation and Research Grants that the government does, which require you to have a pilot partner for you to, to actually get one of these grants. So there are these, if we think about businesses, both there's technical risk and then there's capital stack risk or financial risk in that. If we look at energy companies and hardware companies, there are kind of expected milestones for you to hit along both of those routes that are partially government subsidized, partially industry subsidized. And then of course your private capital can come in. So going through uh, an ICAP, getting an uh, SBIR, getting a Commonwealth commercialization funding grant from VIPSI, um, and then you know getting some private capital and then doing a test pilot with EPRI or with the National Lab, and, right? There's kind of this natural progression and it's the entrepreneurs that want to kind of skip over some of those steps, whether they don't know the steps or the steps are just taking too long, that is where you kind of get into trouble. Energy is just very, to me, energy has just a very clear pathway. You need to go to the, you need to do this and this and this and this, and then you can go raise your big dollars and come to a, a DEIC accelerate because you're ready for a utility. It's when you, I always had a good mentor of mine say, um, his saying was always, beware the dog that catches the car. Right. So when the dog's chasing the car, what happens when it catches it? Right. If you go try to sell a Dominion before you're ready for a Dominion, that's going to railroad your company quicker than if you don't get a Dominion. And, and so it's knowing where you're at in the de-risking of your technology, but also your business, uh, the business itself to, to be yeah. able to go after that uh, pitch. I mean, I'm sure you all say the same thing to people who are doing SaaS companies. Right. And they're like, well, we just we're just going to go sell straight to the Fortune 500s. You're like that's okay, sure. Yeah. Like that's maybe it's, not the best. Again, it's to get into the checklist. It's like you. Well, how are you going to get in? I mean, it's yeah. And I think that you guys, yeah, I'll I'll plug you guys because 
the thing that's why Dominion entrusts DEIC to be mm -hmm. that front door. I mean, you're the trusted agent. Like, hey, don't necessarily pitch us. This is the this is the funnel. This is where you start. Right. And then you guys are the ground truth. They're like, hey, go talk to ICAP, go talk to whatever organization. But you know, so to answer your question, Zach, it's just you, know, you talk to Adam, you talk to Braden, that that's who you need to pitch to. And they're the trusted source. Yeah, so, Braden, Braden's spot on. And people don't always want to hear it. And often the, that's the conversation we're having is in, in, in like an energy world or sustainability world for startup, especially a hardware startup, there's a really well-defined path. And it involves a lot of time and a lot of DOE money and pro different types of programs. And you sort of work your way up by de-risking over time. And um, if you're gonna if you're gonna do this process, you just sort of have to accept that and dive in and know that that you're gonna do the de-risking process until somebody's ready to um, you know pick it up. I've been I've been thinking about this a lot, and it's you know it's the nature of energy is not a new industry. You can get you you could have gotten rich quick with crypto, right? Because it was an entirely new asset class. It was an entirely new industry, right? And that means there's not regulation. That means there's not established players. That means there's not necessarily huge risk with failure. So you fail fast to capture market share because the market is still developing. So every percent of market share you've captured is probably a percent of market share that you've created. In energy world, We've had energy since the beginning of humans, right? It was fires and then we could kind of capture that and move it throughout, right? It's just been different ways. We're still spinning turbines. Essentially, the majority of our system is just creating steam to spin turbines or we're using the wind to spin turbines or, you know, through photovoltaics, we can take sunlight and create electrons. But it's not new. It's not um it's not a uh, it's not a move fast and break things market because it's not a new market. And so it takes a certain type of entrepreneur who's willing to be patient and also takes a type of funder that has that patient capital, which is where like a Virginia Venture Partners comes in and, and where some of your longer horizon investment firms come in and recognize and it's not going to be a SaaS play. But it's going to be a little bit harder. It's going to be actually a lot harder to try to get off the ground because you're in an established, well-regulated, uh, nationally critical type of industry. Yeah, it's a super high barrier to entry. But then once, you know, once you're, if you're, if you make it, right, your moat is really good, and your moat is based on IP and fitting into the business model that exists. Have you found? So maybe 10, 15 years ago, a lot of people were talking about because of the port in here, a lot of truck drivers are going to go away where you're going to lose 20,000 truck drivers over a certain period of time, or maybe it was even more than that. I don't know what the number was exactly. Um, the workforce seems to have moved to want to do different things. You, you see a lot of, you see a lot of uh, companies that are hiring and you just wonder where the workforce is in a lot of these things. Do you find that there is a substantial amount of people that are being uh, positioned to work in these style of businesses and then on the opposite side are you seeing that there's a ton of founders that are interested in starting these style of businesses so that this stuff can come to fruition or, or where do you see kind of the the growing workforce in this where so many old industries seem yeah. to be lacking uh um the next wave of of employees can i brain i'll do the, the short version because yeah. we really have a couple minutes. Um, one, there are a lot of people starting 
businesses in this area and there should be because there's more money for it than ever there's never been more money for stuff devoted to sort of climate tech and energy tech um both federal and, and vc um and two yeah workforce is an issue just like it is with everybody because especially we're talking stem fields we're talking engineers we're talking electricians right so the worry is like we're going to electrify everything but do we have enough electricians in the, com the country to electrify everything do we have enough electricians who are going to understand that when you want to put in an EV charger and uh, an electric stove and a heat pump, how to do that properly in your home. And that's, that's the concern. And I don't, I don't know that anybody has an answer to that yet. Well, I'll just plug one of our other partners, the Virginia Energy Workforce Consortium, which is an mm -hmm. industry, uh, industry led, um, in many case regards was founded by Dominion. Uh, but now has lots of partners from across the across the spectrum of what energy means. Um, and, and they led an incredible effort to get energy included as the 17th career cluster at the state curriculum level. And so now there's 16 other clusters, right? Think healthcare, um, think STEM types of things, right? And, and they specifically got energy included as one because of our expertise in it. Um, and because of the opportunities for really high paying jobs within it, right? Even the manufacturing lines, even the assembly lines that, that we could think of as monotonous aren't, right? They're really high paying, highly technical welders and machinists and, and, and trades, craftsmen and women who are being employed in this because it's CNC's, it's software, it's all of the really cool things to do. So they led a really good effort at the state to get energy uh, included as a 17th career cluster that's now being driven down into our K-12 educational curriculums. And they're hosting events and they're including the energy perspective. And we're really working at all grassroots levels to try to make sure that we have enough operators, that we have enough technicians, that we have enough engineers and inventors and entrepreneurs to, to capture the national and global opportunity in, in the energy transition. It's good stuff. I've enjoyed the conversation. It, uh, and hopefully if the audience, if, if new ideas come to mind, these yep. are the guys to talk to. And I would assume that uh, Spark 757, there's going to be a lot more of this conversation. So uh, yeah, absolutely. If you enjoy what we've been talking about today, uh, March or um, May 16th. Yeah. yeah, it's coming up. May 16th, we'll, uh, three weeks. Yeah, we'll be sure to include the registration and all that stuff in the show notes so that people can uh, register to to attend. What, uh, we, we've really enjoyed the conversation, yeah. uh, uh, Zach and, and Tim. Really enjoyed it. Thank you so much for having us on. And and don't be strangers to anyone out there in the audience. Come find us, A and Ashland Center of the Universe, or uh, mm -hmm. reach out to us on, on our emails. Adam's just Adam at dominnovation.com. I'm Braden at dominnovation.com. We'd love to talk to you, hear your idea. And uh, yeah, another plug for Spark 757. We're awarding $8,500 in unrestricted, non-dilutive grants. And we're going to have more of this type of conversation with the leaders in the energy world in Virginia. So come out and, and say, hey. Yeah. I love it. Appreciate your time. Thanks, Thanks guys. Fellas. I'll, I'll see you guys on the 16th. All right. We'll see you in a couple weeks. Because I'll be there. Good. Very cool.